0: Uh, I am just going to tell you tonight, as I begin, that there's some things I'm going to say this evening that I am not 100% sure about, which is a terrible way to start a message or a sermon of any kind. Uh, You guys all know, like speech 101, one of the first rules of public speaking is you want to portray an air of confidence. You want your audience, your listeners to feel confident that you know what you're talking about. Well, I'm going to tell you tonight, I do not know what I am talking about, okay? Uh, There are some things at least that I'm going to be touching on that, that I am still learning and still working through, some things that are somewhat mysterious to me, but that's okay because there is one thing that I'm really certain about. One truth, and actually this truth is something that you need to be certain about, something that I think will help you a lot. If you can grasp this truth, it's going to save you a fair amount of headaches and a fair amount of confusion and frustration in life, and hopefully it will save you um, some level of conflict, actually, in life. And that's this truth, uh, that in the Christian faith, there are what we call close-handed beliefs or doctrines. And they're what we call open-handed beliefs or doctrines. This isn't a word you find in the Bible, by the way. This is just a way that we describe these. Close-handed beliefs, close-handed doctrines, and open-handed doctrines. And it's important to be able to know the difference between the two. Close-handed doctrines are those beliefs that are so essential and so critical to what Christianity is that if you let go of them, you lose Christianity. Uh, These are the doctrines that the Bible places the most amount of emphasis and clarity on. It it will talk about them in very clear ways, and it will talk about them repeatedly, and it will put a strong emphasis on these things. And so these kind of beliefs we hold on tightly. We're going to come to one next chapter. We're we're in 1 Corinthians 14 tonight, but the next chapter, in a couple weeks, we're going to get to 1 Corinthians 15, which opens with one of the most close-handed beliefs in all the Bible. Paul says this. I passed on to you as of what is in first in importance. Of first importance, he says, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried according to the scriptures, and that he raised again three days later according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by over five hundred people. He says that is of first importance. So Paul will go on to say actually a little bit later in the chapter, if that did not happen, if Jesus did not raise from the dead, then you can scrap everything else in this book then all of our faith rests on nothing. That is the foundation, and so that is a belief. Jesus is the Son of God who came and died for you and I's sins and was buried and then rose again physically, bodily. That is a belief that we hold to very tightly. And we don't let go of those things. And a person who doesn't believe that, biblically, says, is not a follower of Jesus, is not a Christian, because the Christian faith falls apart with it. But there are other beliefs that are open-handed beliefs. These are are things that we see in Scripture, but they don't receive quite the level of clarity. They don't receive the amount of emphasis that other things are taught in the Scriptures. And and so there's some bit of debate sometimes over these things. For example, how much free will do we have when it comes to choosing God? Well, that's a big debate that has lasted hundreds of years within the church. Words like predestination get thrown around, okay? Calvinism, Arminianism, these kinds of things get thrown back and forth. And, and what exactly does the Bible teach on that? Now, I have some beliefs about what the Bible teaches on that, but I will tell you that I, I hold those beliefs with an open hand. I hold those, hand, those, those beliefs loosely, and I would never let those kind of beliefs divide me and a brother or sister, Uh, What does the Bible teach like in Revelation about the end times and how things are all going to come to an end? That's an open-handed belief. I have beliefs about that. I have some somewhat strong beliefs about that. But I do not believe that that's a close-handed belief. You might believe something completely different than me about the way we interpret the book of Revelation. But I'll tell you that if you are a brother or sister in Christ, I will not let that divide us. And there are a lot of divisions that have taken place in church history, not over closed handed doctrines. Those ones, those ones we're willing to die for, but over open-handed doctrines that maybe we didn't need to be dividing over. And so it's important to be able to tell the difference tonight. We're going to be walking through an open-handed belief that has caused a fair amount of controversy over the years. Some of you are not going to agree with some of the things I say tonight. That's Okay. My hand is open to you. It's okay. If, if we disagree, that's, I, I would love to talk with you a little bit more about it sometime, but we can be free to disagree and still have fellowship with one another and still love one another and still uh, work alongside one another in the church, in the body of Christ. Some of you, if, if you're not a follower of Jesus, some of the stuff we're going to talk about tonight is just going to sound weird, and that's okay, too. Uh, I would love to talk to you about the weirdness of some of the things that we will hit on tonight. 1 Corinthians 14, you can go there and uh, and we'll jump into it. While you're turning to 1 Corinthians 14, I'm going to kind of catch you up. Over the last few chapters, Paul has been talking to the Corinthian church about spiritual gifts. This was a big topic in this church and one that they worked through uh, quite a bit. And so Paul really wants to hammer down and give them a good understanding. When you read through these, you get a fairly clear picture, kind of quick, that uh, the Corinthians had a fascination with spiritual gifts and that there was like one or two specifically that they were super into and that they had developed this kind of these two different categories of the haves and the have-nots based on who had this particular gift and, and those who had this particular gift, they were considered like the, the super spiritual ones. They were considered like the elite Christians. And everybody, everybody else, they were kind of in the, the ordinary Christian category. they kind of, okay, yeah, you can kind of be a part of us, but you're not fully a part of us. And so this is a really big deal. And Paul writes to correct this issue. And in the first two chapters, 12 and 13 that we've been studying here, he basically says three things. The first thing is this. You need to know that every Christian, everyone who follows Jesus, has received a gift from the Holy Spirit, given to them by the Holy Spirit. And because it's given, this is still under one, because it's given, that means whatever gift you have doesn't make you better than other people. Doesn't mean you got it because you're more spiritual. You just got it because the Holy Spirit chose to give it to you. And so there's no such thing as a gift that is not needed. That's the second thing. Every gift is needed. Every member of the church is needed, and the gifts that they've been given by the Holy Spirit are important for the church. And the third thing is this. We, wrote, we read this in First Corinthians 13, that self-giving love is the guiding principle for all things spiritual gifts. Anything that has to do with spiritual gifts and you want to know what's it for, how do I use it, what does it look like, love is what you come back to over and over and over again. That's actually the self-guiding principle for how we operate in every part of our Christian life. That we love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. And we love our neighbors, our brothers and sisters as ourselves. So these are the things that he has been hammering on. Now he's going to address the specific gift that has been causing so much problems in the Corinthian church. And we've talked about it a little bit. We've kind of, you know, given you a little bit of a spoiler alert as to where this is going. But Paul doesn't actually hit it until 14. And it is uh, tongues is this gift. And then he's going to talk about another gift that he actually says, let me tell you a real gift you should be fascinated by. This is the one that you should really get into. Let me uh, read starting in 14.1. Notice how this is one continuous argument. He flows right out of the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, and he moves from that idea of love straight into his talk on tongues and on prophecy. Uh, He says this, pursue love, just like I told you, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, and especially that you may prophesy. For the person who speaks in another tongue is not speaking to people, but to God, since no one understands him. He speaks mysteries in the spirit. And on the other hand, the person who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouragement, and consolation. There are two things I want you to notice in those first few verses. The first is this. We are supposed to... Desire spiritual gifts. That's something that we should want. It's something we should ask for. It's something that we should long for to have spiritual gifts. I believe that the Holy Spirit gives every believer when they come to Christ a spiritual gift to be used for the church, but I don't believe that's the only time He does. I believe that the Holy Spirit can still give spiritual gifts to us at different points in life. And he says we should desire this. But the second thing to see is the reason you ought to desire it is because of love, once again. Because we know this, that whatever gift I get from the Holy Spirit is not for me. Whatever gift I've been given is for you. It is to be used for the building up of the church. It is to build up my brothers and sisters. Now the gift that the Corinthians have been desiring like crazy is the gift of tongues. Paul says, you got it wrong. Nothing wrong with tongues, Paul says. He'll he'll get into that in a little bit. But he says, actually, if you're going to be craving a gift, there's a gift you ought to really want. It's prophecy. And here's where we get into the controversy. Um, This is where a lot of churches have begun to divide over these two specific things and a few other gifts kind of thrown in there. Um, There are two main debates that we need to kind of just... We're, I'm going to try my best to not get too far into the weeds, but we've got to kind of talk a little bit about this. And, and we're going to spend more time in the first half of our talk, and then we're going to take a break. And our second half is going to be a little bit shorter. But I need to spend a little time to kind of get into this because there are two big questions about these. Uh, the, the first question is, what are these things? What are tongues? What is prophecy? Paul talks about the gift of tongues. What does he mean? There's a lot of debate about that. When Paul talks about prophecy, what does he mean? There's a lot of debate about that. And then the second question is, do they still exist today? There's a lot of debate about that. Do they still exist today? Uh, I don't have too much time to get into that second question. I'm just going to go ahead and just kind of show you my hand. I'm going to tell you kind of where I'm at with that. Um, I, I I believe, as I have read the scriptures, and, and my mind has actually changed over the course of my life on this, I actually believe that these gifts, tongues and prophecies, still exist today. There are two major camps, Alexia hit on this a few weeks ago, there's what's called the cessationist camp, and these are people who believe that these uh, more supernatural, or what we call the sign gifts, tongues and prophecy specifically, but maybe even like healing, those kinds of things, that that all stopped when the apostles died in the first century when the Bible was finished being written, that those ceased. And so they're called cessationists. And then there's another group called continuationists that believe that these gifts continue on until Jesus comes. I've actually, over the course of my life, kind of moved into this category. But as I said earlier, I hold this openly. All right, uh, But I believe that these gifts continue and will continue until Jesus returns. If you want to get into that, if you've got questions, come talk to me afterwards. We can talk for a little bit. Also, know this. In two weeks, because Corinthians has a lot of crazy stuff, next week we're going to get into another crazy thing. Um, because it's got a lot of crazy stuff, in two weeks we're actually going to have a special Q&A night where we'll kind of try to answer whatever questions may be on your mind and things that you lack some clarity on, and we'll try our best to bring some clarity to those things. So if you got questions, we can talk about it then, or you and I can talk a little bit later. Okay, let's get into tongues, though, real quick, all right? Uh, There appears to be in the Bible two different expressions of this gift, two different ways that this works. Some people would say there's only one, but I think there's two. The first is this, tongues appear to be in one place an earthly language that is miraculously given to enable a speaker to share the gospel. That is, the Holy Spirit in a moment gives me the ability to speak a language that I don't know. So that I can share the gospel with people. We see this happen in Acts 2 where the church is gathered together. There are 120 people on the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit comes on the church and they began, it says, speaking in tongues. Now you should know this, that the Greek word for tongue is glossa and it literally can be translated tongue and it literally can be translated language. They used the word tongue and language interchangeably. To speak in foreign tongues was to speak in foreign languages. So they begin speaking in tongues. They begin speaking in languages. And then they go out into the temple courts, and as they're speaking, all these people who are gathered there for this festival from all these different corners of the world can understand the message that they're speaking in their own language. They're speaking something that appears to be their languages, and they're able to hear that. And so that seems to be something that happens with tongues. Some would say that's all tongues are, is only the ability to speak another language. But another expression that I think is being talked about is uh, a heavenly language, or some might say an angelic language that is used for prayer and praise. It is used in praising God and in praying to God. This is a language that is not understood understood by other human beings that are listening around you. It is a language that is often not even understood by the speaker themselves. It's not a language that the speaker learns, like you go to Spanish class and you learn how to, like, parse sentences and verb tenses and stuff like that. It's not like that. I believe that both of these exist, and the reason I believe that Acts 2... In 1 Corinthians 14, what we just read about are two different kinds. is because in Acts 2, they are speaking to people about God. But in verse 2, what we just read, Paul says that when somebody speaks in tongues, they don't speak to people. They speak to God. And so I think that he's actually talking about a different expression of this gift, this this more heavenly, uh, angelic language. Now, you might be thinking, even as I talk about these things, that sounds crazy. Some sort of like magical angel language that people just start speaking and it, it sounds like gibberish to people and they don't know what it is? That sounds crazy. Well, I have good news for you. Paul is going to agree with you in just a minute. We'll get there. Prophecy. What is prophecy? Well, there's a spectrum of ideas on this, but there are basically kind of two extremes in believing of what in believing what prophecy is when Paul talks about it here in 1 Corinthians 14. One group, that if you go to kind of the far end, there's a group that says, when Paul talks about prophecy, New Testament prophecy, he's talking about the same kind of thing that we see in the Old Testament. Like when Isaiah the prophet comes and speaks, and it is a divine word from the Lord, and it is infallible. That means it is without error, and it, is, it has the authority of God itself, and you need to listen to it. That's what Paul's talking about here. And there are some people who believe that that is the case, that that is what prophecy is. Actually, the Mormon church, which is not a Christian church, uh, but the Mormon church, actually, they believe, they have a... a Sitting prophet, a prophet at all times who they believe speaks on behalf of God. And when he speaks, it is just as important as anything you might find in the scripture. That's their belief. Okay. Now, you go to the other side and other people will say, no, no, no. When Paul is talking about prophecy, all he really means is essentially preaching. Speaking the word of God. Maybe with, with extra passion, with extra fire. Essentially, they would say like prophecy is kind of what I'm doing right here. And so this kind of, if if that's what Paul's meaning in this prophecy, that's completely fallible. I could be wrong. I can make mistakes. I can have errors. And what I say is not on the same level as this. Okay, so there's these kind of two different ends of the spectrum, but there is actually kind of a third middle ground. And like I said, there's kind of positions all along that says, no, no, we think that actually what Paul is talking about, as you read through the New Testament, it appears that the prophecy he's talking about is not just preaching the word of God and explaining that. Because whenever that happens, they use the word teaching or preaching. A word of instruction. They use those kinds of words. And, and, and Paul doesn't seem to be talking about that when he says prophecy. And when we watch these things in like the book of Acts, it sounds more like a, a word that is given from the Lord and spoken through a human being. A God says something to someone and they kind of communicate it out to people. But it also appears that those words are not considered infallible that we don't take that level of prophecy like with the same degree as, say, the book of Isaiah. Because Paul will say later on in this chapter, when a prophet stands up and speaks in church, the rest of you need to evaluate it. That is, you need to weigh it out and make sure, did what he just said match up with the scriptures? Because he might have heard wrong. He might not have gotten that perfectly right, and so we're going we're gonna to trust this more than we trust what that guy says. But if what he says matches up here, If it appears to run true with what God has revealed to us in his word, then we'll listen to that. He'll say the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 20, that you don't despise prophecy. You should listen, but you need to test it. And so I believe that what Paul is talking about is is not infallible, no mistakes, and you trust this as the word of God. But at the same time, it's not just preaching. It's something that is kind of spoken and heard, and and it it can be spoken out, but it doesn't mean that the person who speaks it has like divine authority. John Piper, you'll you'll hear us kind of quote from him sometimes. He's a Baptist minister in Minneapolis. Actually, he's retired now, but was a minister at Bethlehem Baptist for many years. Um, And one day, John Piper was speaking to his church, and he was talking about the, the importance of small groups and evangelistic Bible studies. And he was trying to convince them, that they should be doing these things and trying to talk. And as he's saying these things, he kind of looked over in a certain section, he's just giving examples, and he said, "Um, maybe you should start a Bible study. Maybe, he said, you might be working on the 34th floor of the IDS Tower in Minneapolis, and maybe you should call your people together and have a small group meeting. He's just kind of making some examples. Maybe you're in this situation. Maybe you're in this situation. Maybe you're on the 34th floor of the IDS Tower, and you need to call your people together for a small group. After he was done, this lady came up to him and said, why did you say that? So, said, why did I say what? Why did you say that thing about starting a small group on the 34th floor of the IDS Tower? I, said, I, I don't know. I was just speaking and I just said that. She said, well, you were looking at me when you said that, and I've been praying for the last couple weeks about whether I should start a small group where I work, which is the 34th floor of the IDS Tower. And And Piper would tell you, I think Piper would say, he doesn't even consider himself to have the gift of prophecy. But he does actually pray before almost every time he preaches, God, if there's something you want me to say that I do not have prepared in my notes that someone has to hear, say it through me. I believe that is kind of a glimpse as to what we're talking about, what Paul is talking about when he speaks about the idea of prophecy. But John Piper's not infallible. I love John Piper, but there's a number of things he says that I actually don't fully agree with him on. Uh, I love a lot of what he teaches, but I don't consider him to be a prophet like Isaiah when he says those things. This is what we're talking about. Okay, now that we've cleared all of that up, and there are no more questions about prophecy in tongues, and everybody understands them completely, and we all agree, right? Right? Okay, good. Now, we can get to the text. Verse 4. He says this, the person who speaks in another tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. I wish all of you spoke in other tongues, but even more than that, that you would prophesy. The person who prophesies is greater than the person who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so that the church may be built up. So he says this, that building oneself up is what happens when you speak in tongues. There's something that when a person is praying and speaking in tongues, that they are encouraged, that they are strengthened, that they are filled with joy. But he says, remember what the primary purpose of spiritual gifts are. They are to build the church up. And it's not a bad thing, Paul says, that a person is getting built up. That's great for them. But if they're doing that in the middle of a church service, nobody around them is benefiting. The, whole, the, the primary purpose is that they would build up the church. And he says, I would love for you to speak in tongues. Earlier in chapter 12, he said, not everyone will. That's not a gift everyone has. He said, but I'd rather you all prophesy. And he also says, not everyone will. The reason I would rather you all prophesy, he says, is because that benefits others when you're speaking a word of clarity. A person who speaks tongues only edifies themselves in less There is another person, and and this was talked about in chapter 12, with a gift of interpretation, that the Holy Spirit enables them to understand what is being spoken and then to translate that out for the rest of the church so that they can benefit from those things as well. Uh, Verse 6, So now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you speaking in other tongues, how will I benefit you unless I speak to you with a revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? even lifeless instruments that produce sounds, whether flute or harp, if they don't make a distinction in the notes, how will what is played on the flute or harp be recognized? In fact, if the bugle makes an unclear sound, who will prepare for battle? In the same way, unless you use your tongue for intelligible speech, how will what is spoken be known? For you will be speaking into the air." There are doubtless many different kinds of languages in the world. None is without meaning. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the, spe- to the speaker, and the speaker will be a foreigner to me. So also you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to excel in building up the church. So Paul prefers prophecy to tongues, but in verse 6 he actually goes and says, truthfully, I prefer any bit of speaking that has intelligible language that people can understand. I prefer that to tongues, whether that be a word of revelation or just teaching and instruction. And he uses these two illustrations. Musical instruments can make all kinds of notes, but unless there is some semblance of order, unless there is a pattern, unless those notes are working together to make something that can be heard, the musical instrument is doing no good to the listener. Or a bugle blowing out. If it blows out the wrong notes, then, then the army doesn't know it's time for battle. And he says, just like in human languages, if I'm speaking a language you don't understand, it makes you feel like a stranger to me. And it makes me feel like a stranger to you. The same with using this gift. We must speak in a way that people can understand. So if a person has the gift of tongues, he says, what are they supposed to do? Here's the answer. Verse 13. Therefore... The person who speaks in another tongue should pray that he can interpret. For if I pray in another tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing praise with the spirit, and I will also sing praise with my understanding. Otherwise, if you praise with the spirit, how will the outsider say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? For you may very well be giving thanks, but the other person is not being built up. The answer, Paul says, is don't speak in tongues in the church unless God is giving you the ability to interpret it so that it's not just you who benefits, so that others can benefit. But then he also goes on to say, actually, if I can interpret it as I'm speaking in those things, I benefit more as well. This is a truth that is just kind of real for all of us, that when we worship, that we engage in our worship on a number of different levels, that there is, when you sing praises to God, when you pray, when you speak to Him, that there can be an emotional, experiential element to that. Something that moves you deeply and that can be hard to explain. Many of you have experienced this as you are involved in a worship service and you're singing these words and you have felt like, like God's presence is so near and it's hard to explain or put your finger exactly on what's happening but you know that feeling of the emotion and the joy that takes place in that and that is a good gift from God when we get to experience those things. One of the things that tongues appears to provide is that on another level. That a person has this ability to to feel this level of communion and connection with God that they might not normally. But Paul says we need more than just that. Worship works best when it's not just my emotions involved, but when there is my mind is engaged. When my understanding is engaged. And that way that I am reflecting on the truths that I'm singing and not just feeling good that I am reflecting on the truth that I am praying, and that is what's giving my my emotion. As I think through the things that Jesus has done for me, as I think through the kind of God that we serve, as I read about and pray about and sing about all that he is, that when I am thinking through those things, that it moves me, and when those two things, mind and heart, emotions, are working together, that is beautiful. And now Paul is going to say something that might surprise you. Verse 18 I thank God that I speak in other tongues more than all of you. Actually, that would probably surprise the Corinthian church as well. Because some of the Corinthian churches, they thought that they were actually probably a little bit more spiritual, a little bit more superior than Paul. And one of the reasons was because they spoke in tongues so much. And Paul says, actually, just so you know, I I probably speak in tongues more than every last one of you. Yet, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding in order to teach others than 10,000 words in another tongue. So so, so Paul says, I I speak in tongues, but you might not know that because I do that privately. In the church, I would rather speak five intelligible, understandable words than 10,000, which is the biggest word in Greek. It's myriad for a number, and so he's basically saying a bajillion, okay? I'd rather speak five intelligible words than a bajillion words that nobody else can understand. That's kind of his point there that he's making um, and then he moves on into a section that at first will sound like he's contradicting himself, but we'll, we'll make our way through it. Brothers and sisters, uh, verse 20. Brothers and sisters, don't be childish in your thinking, but be infants in regard to evil and adult in your thinking. It is written in the law, I will speak to this people by people of other tongues and by the lips of foreigners, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Speaking in other tongues, then, is intended as a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is not for unbelievers but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church assembles together and all are speaking in other tongues and people who are outsiders or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you were out of your minds? But if all are prophesying and some unbeliever or outsider comes in, he is convicted by all the words and is called to account by all the words. The secret of his heart will be revealed, and as a result, he will fall face down and worship God, proclaiming, God is really among you. So Paul first says that tongues are a sign for unbelievers. But then he'll go on to say, prophecy is what unbelievers need. So which is it? Is it a sign for them, or, or is it prophecy, that what they need? Well, actually, if we understand what he means by sign, he quotes this passage from Isaiah 28. I will speak to this people by people of other tongues. That chapter, Isaiah 28, is where Paul is talking to the people, sorry, Isaiah is talking to the people of Israel, and says, here's what God is telling you. Because you will not listen to my language, you're going to hear the language of foreigners soon. That is, God is going to send the armies of Assyria and Babylon and the Persians to come in and conquer you and carry you off into captivity. And when you hear the languages that you do not understand, when you are surrounded by foreign tongues all around you, that will be a sign that my judgment has come upon you. And so Paul is taking that verse and he's saying, when unbelievers, when someone who's not a Christian comes into a church service and hears a bunch of people speaking in tongues, that basically becomes like, a sign of judgment on them because they're probably going to reject Christianity altogether because, Paul says, you sound crazy. That's the the whole thing. He says when when you speak like this and there's no one interpreting and doing that, it just sounds crazy to people. And so that's why prophecy is so important, not just for our brothers and sisters, but so that we are speaking intelligibly, he says, when someone who is not a believer comes in and they can hear the truth. And they can understand what's going on rather than being turned off by something that just seems so odd and bizarre. So, I told you, first of all, that Paul was going to agree with you about it being crazy. The question is, what do we do with this passage? Because for most of us, I'm guessing, it might not feel like there's a lot for you here. Like, I don't know if I got either of those gifts. And so what am I supposed to do? Okay, Paul, deal. I won't speak in tongues in church. All right, I'm with you. So so what are we supposed to do with that? Well, there is one key idea that drives this whole passage that I believe applies to all of us regardless of our giftings and regardless of our place in life, and that's what I want to talk to you shortly after our break. So we'll take a few minutes and then we'll come back and crack it open for a few minutes after that. I told you I'm going to try to be brief on this uh, back half, and I, I really do intend to do that. We'll see if I can hold to. But of uh, Furman is a very impressive and very odd man. This 67-year-old health food store manager is famous for one thing, and that is he holds the Guinness World record. For the most Guinness World Records. More world records than anybody else. The most recent number that I was able to find on this, it's kind of changing from month to month, day to day, but the most recent one I found is that he currently holds 200 Guinness World Records. At one point, he actually held, he has broken, or he has set 600 Guinness World Records in his lifetime, but, but currently still holds on to 200 of them. But uh, these are not records like uh, the world's fastest mile or the world's longest or highest jump. Uh, these are a little bit more random than that. Just want to give you a handful of the records that Mr. Furman currently holds. Ashrita Furman holds the records for the most bananas sliced with a sword while standing on a slack line in one minute. Number is 36, in case you're wondering. The most electric fan blades stopped with your tongue in one minute. The greatest number of games of hopscotch successfully completed in 24 hours. The man played 434 games of hopscotch, by the way, in 24 hours. The fastest time to peel and eat three kiwi fruits. The greatest distance to spit a ping pong ball. Okay, this one's actually pretty legit. He, and I have no idea how he did this, I've got to find the video, spit a ping pong ball 42 feet. That's, that's for real right there. That, I, that is really impressive. He holds the record for the farthest distance jumped underwater on a pogo stick. He holds the record for the fastest time to push an orange a distance of one mile using your nose. He also holds the record for the fastest mile hopping on a pogo stick whilst juggling three balls. It should be noted, actually, when I looked at that one on the Guinness World Records, there's a little note under that one that says, you must be 16 years old or older to try to break this record. I don't know why. I don't know why you're allowed to stand on a slack line with a katana blade in your hand and swing at swords when you're like seven, but you got to be 16 to jump on a pogo stick, But. He also, lastly, holds the record for the most paper airplanes caught in his mouth in one minute. 17, by the way, if you're wondering. Why does a Shreda Furman hold so many records? Why has he set 600 different records, and why does he still currently hold 200 different records that nobody else has broken? There are a lot of reasons why, I'm sure. Uh, hard work perseverance, focus, a lot of free time. But do you wanna know what I think is probably the biggest reason why he holds so many records? Because nobody cares. Because nobody else cares about those things because as I was saying those things, there was no one here in the room who thought, wait a second, I'm pretty sure I'm the best underwater pogo stick jumper in the world. Who does this guy think he is? Right? There's nobody in here who's like, I thought I held the record for the most bananas sliced while holding a sword while standing on a slack line in under one minute. And there's no one in here who is thinking, that's not fair. I thought I was that guy. I should go break those. As impressive as Mr. Furman is, and I don't mean to dog him because a lot of those things are fairly impressive. A lot of the reasons his records still stand today and will stand for a very long time is because nobody cares to try to break them is because he has devoted his life to a lot of things that don't really matter. There's this famous missionary, actually he's considered kind of the father of the modern missions movement. William Carey was his name. He's from England. And in the early 1800s, there really was no such thing as like missionary work for the most part. It was kind of just understood, hey, we get Jesus and the rest of the world can kind of do whatever they're doing. But William Carey began to think this isn't quite right. If if I get to know Jesus, if I've heard this incredible truth that he has come to set me free from my sins, he has died for me and he came because he loves the whole world, then it only makes sense that those people over there should get to hear it too. And so he devoted his life to wanting to go, and he took the gospel over to India and started kind of this movement where missions became a thing again, where more people could hear the gospel. But he has this quote that I think is really incredible. He once said, I am not afraid of failure, I'm afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. Not afraid of failing as I try to do big things for God. I'm not, afraid, I'm not afraid of messing up and falling short. I'm afraid of being really good at things that don't matter. I'm afraid of devoting my life to something and mastering it and everybody being really impressed and then finding out at the end that it did not matter. That is what I am afraid of. That is a fear that I think more people should probably have. Because there are a lot of us who will devote our lives. There are a lot of people who are very driven and who are very gifted and they're going to become incredibly successful in life because they're going to set their minds to doing something and they're going to not stop at anything until they get it done and then they're going to get to the end of their life and they're going to find out that all that drivenness and all that work and all that effort went to something that was not that important. There are people who will work hard to successfully rise to the top of their field, to be known as great in their line of work, to be seen as an expert, to be the most knowledgeable, to be the top, and in the process, they will find that they do it at the expense of all of their relationships, that they lose the connection they had with their kids, that they lose their marriage in the process. There will be people who will make more money than you and I might ever dare dream, but they will sell their character out to do it. They will do really well in things that don't matter all that much. It's not that rising to the top of your field is a bad thing. It's not that building some company from the ground up and making it really successful and making a lot of money while doing that. It's not that that's a bad thing. Those are okay things. It's just that they are lesser things, and we do not want them to ever get in the way of doing greater things. That we don't want to do them at the expense of greater things. Tonight, my simple encouragement to you is this that you would give yourself to something great, that you would give your lives to something important, something that is lasting, to something that will outlast any company that you could ever build something that will go far beyond any organization or movement or political party that you could ever join. To something that will way outlast your life. To something that will way outlast any empire or any nation that has ever existed on the face of the planet. That you will give yourself to serving and building up the body of Christ. That you will give yourself to serving and building up the church. The church is something big and great, not because the church is great in and of itself. It's not because the people in it, because we're awesome. No, the church is something bigger and greater than all those other things I just mentioned because it belongs to Jesus and because it serves his purpose. And that is something worth being successful at. That is something worth giving your life to. Paul says in First Corinthians 14:12. I want to read it again because it is so good. So also you... Since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to excel in building up the church. He says, you're excited about spiritual gifts? You get excited about that, you get pumped? Great, okay, but can I tell you, if you're going to get excited about something, If you're going to be good at anything in life, if you're going to excel at anything in life, excel at this, at building up the body of Christ, at bringing people into the church, bringing people into this body, into this family so that they can know the love of Jesus, so they can give their life to Him and then give your life to building those people up, to serving those people. To loving those people, to discipling those people. Give yourself to something that will last for longer than your lifetime. You know the experience of really getting into something? You know that? Feeling when you discover like a new hobby or a new passion that you get really, really excited in, and into. Maybe it's fitness and health, and you really get into understanding nutrition and how to kind of take care of your body, or into exercise and doing those things. Maybe it's something like golf, or maybe it's something like music, and you find this kind of passion. You find yourself doing whatever you can to get better at that thing. You find yourself reading articles online about it or following certain uh, social media accounts, influencers that talk about that thing so you can learn more about it. You find yourself watching YouTube videos so you can learn how can I improve at this And, and you lay in bed at night thinking about that thing that you love so much and that you get so passionate about doing or growing in. Your passion moves you to excel in that thing and that drive That happens to some of us. Some of us are type A personalities. That happens more frequently. Some of us are more kind of obsessive and driven, and that happens more frequently. But all of us know that feeling of something that we get really excited about and we start chasing. That's a God-given thing inside of us. This drivenness, this drive to, to do something and to do it well, to master it, to work hard in that thing, that is a good thing that God has placed inside of you. But we contend sometimes to funnel our passion and our resources towards things that might be good, that might be fun, but in the end are not always that important. Towards things that, that, that are even good but they come at the expense of greater things and we end up being successful in things that do not matter. If you're going to excel at something in life, if you're going to study up, if you're going to practice, if you're going to work hard, if you're going to be good at something, be really good at this, serving Jesus and his church. Don't be afraid of failure. Be afraid of succeeding at things that do not matter. So what do you do? How do you follow 1 Corinthians 14, 12, excel in this, building up the church. How do you do that? Let me tell you at least one thing you don't do, at least not yet. Don't change your major. You can do that, you know, three or four more times before the end of your college career, but don't do it just yet. Uh, sometimes when we talk about things like this, my fear is that the first thing that starts to kind of well up inside a student as they hear us talk about doing important things and doing things for the church and doing things for Christ and his mission and his kingdom, you start to go, man, I don't see how my major, how my career path really serves that. Like, i got to find something more, you know, significant something more meaningful than than whatever you might be thinking, accounting or engineering or whatever it is. It just doesn't feel like that helps people. It doesn't feel like that helps the kingdom. And so the the temptation is to start to go, maybe I need to shift and maybe I need to um, go into like nonprofit work or maybe I need to go into education and, and teach kids or counseling or maybe I need to go into ministry and hear me. If you feel like perhaps the Spirit might be putting that on you, if you feel this calling towards specifically like missionary work, or ministry work, then, then listen and talk that through with someone. We, we would love to talk to you about that and try to help you discern whether that may be a real thing, but don't just jump to this idea that I've got to go into like full-time vocational ministry in order to really serve the Lord. One of the things we try to teach and talk about here at the table is this idea. This is actually on our list of five things. This is number one. This is key. A gospel-centered life. And a gospel-centered life simply means this that I let Jesus who he is and his uh, who he is and what he has done I let that affect every part of my life. And so it means I don't have to divide between, like, the spiritual aspects of my life, the, the, the Christian, the religious parts of my life, and then the, like, non-spiritual parts of my life. No, 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 no. If I believe the gospel and I believe Jesus is who he says he is, and if I believe that he actually died and changed my life and redeemed me, that means every bit of my life I want it to belong to him. And I can use every part of my life, including my major that might not seem to make sense at this point, including the gifts and talents I got, even if they're not necessarily like people-oriented jobs or careers, that I can find ways to leverage the career. I can find ways to leverage the resources that I get towards these things that are greater, towards the things of the kingdom, towards the mission and body of Christ. Some of you in here, you're just going to have a knack for making money. You've got this kind of driven entrepreneurial spirit, and you're just going to be good at making money, and there may be something in you that feels weird about that, and that doesn't feel very Christian, to just be good at making money. But can I tell you, you could be good at making money and then finding ways to use that for things bigger than you. There's a guy in our church named Mike, and some of you guys know Mike. Some of you guys are in Mike's table group, and Mike uh, was, a, was a man who was really good at making money for a while. And what Mike has discovered in recent years is that one of the greatest joys of his life is to use that gift and the money that has come with it to bless Christ and his kingdom and his people. And he uses that money constantly to help people go on the mission field and to help people in our church who are in need in various times. And when I talk to him about that, he just says, that's one of my greatest blessings to get to do those things. Uh, There are people in our uh, church uh, that are owners of businesses. Uh, I think of Jeremy. I I think of uh, others in our church who own their businesses and their whole purpose in owning these businesses is how can I bless the kingdom and how can I love and serve the community that I'm in? And they didn't have to switch to youth ministry to do those things. They used the gifts and resources that they had, the places that they were to serve Christ's kingdom. That's the first thing I want to say. Don't switch your major. The second thing I'm going to say is this, and this one makes me a little bit uncomfortable. It might make you too. Is to follow Paul's advice in verse 1 of chapter 14. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. Desire spiritual gifts. This one, as I said, can make me a little bit uncomfortable because he says specifically desire prophecy. And I don't always know what to do with that one. That makes me a little bit uncomfortable to think about that, but uh, I'm coming to believe that rather than avoiding some of these gifts that are talked about in the Bible because I'm nervous about them, that I ought to desire them because they're not for me anyway. The gifts that he's given to me is for his people, for his church. And so I would encourage you to ask God to give you gifts for his church, to pray for gifts like prophecy, to pray for gifts like the gift of evangelism. That's actually a prayer I've been praying over our ministry for the last year that God would fill me or would fill somebody on staff or would fill one of you with a gift of evangelism to help people who are lost and far from Jesus to get to know him. Pray that God would bless you with the gift for faith. We need people with a great faith to believe in God, to do big things. Pray that God would give you a gift of teaching or give someone in this group a gift of teaching. Pray for our church. Pray for our ministry that God would pour gifts out on us so that we can excel in the things that really matter, which is Christ and his kingdom and his mission and his church. And pray that as we receive these things, we would be biblical in these things that we wouldn't use these gifts to make much of ourselves and make ourselves look good and spiritual, but that we'd use those things for the sake of him. It might make me nervous, but if I trust that God is a good gift giver, and if I want to excel at anything, I want to be great at anything, I want to be successful in anything, I want to excel in this one area of loving Jesus and his church and his mission. And that's what I want for you too. Do not be afraid of failure. Be afraid of succeeding at things that in the end do not really matter. Let me pray for you. We'll be done. Dear God, I pray the prayer that I just said. God, you have given us this task to share your love and the good news of Jesus with people around us. To bring that to the world. God, you have given us this task to build up your church. And to make disciples and encourage and strengthen one another so that we can look more like Jesus. But God, in our own human state, in our own fragile state, we are unable to do that. We don't have the strengths or the ability to change people's hearts or minds. We don't have the the ability to, to help grow this incredible thing called your body. Only you can do that. And only you, through the gifting of your Holy Spirit, can do that. And so, God, we ask you this that all my brothers and sisters in this room, you would pour out your giftings. God, that you would give people in here the gift of evangelism. You would give people the gift of prophecy. God, would you give people the gift of faith? Would you give us the gift of teaching? Would you give us the gift of service? Would you pour these things out on us so that we can obey you, so that we can excel in this one thing, to love Jesus, to love and build up his church? I'm asking for your spirit to do this because we cannot. And I'm asking you this in the name of Jesus. Amen.